the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'll continue to update you if there are developments on the Afghan hostages, the American uh, held hostage by the Afghans. I'm joined now by Glenn Elmers, who I've known for a long time, uh, for at least as long since Harry Jaffa recorded with me an interview many years ago in California on the occasion of uh, a long conversation with the late, great Harry Jaffa. I have in my hand the soul of politics Glenn's new book, Glenn has got his Ph.D. from the Claremont Graduate School, has been a research fellow at Hillsdale College, speechwriter to a couple of cabinet secretaries, and now has authored an amazingly good book. Good morning, Glenn. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, Glenn, I want people to understand who you are before we get started on the book. And I talked to, I was talking about you behind your back with Dr. Arn yesterday as we prepare to talk about the soul of politics in two weeks on the Hillsdale Dialogue and probably for a few weeks on the Hillsdale Dialogue. But would you tell people first about who you are and where you come from so that they get an understanding why they've got to read the age of politics and when they do, they can trust you on what you write? So I actually studied in Claremont in graduate school. Professor Jaffa had retired uh, when I got there, but he was still around, very active. Uh, I worked part-time at the Claremont Institute, which was founded by some of Jaffa's students before I arrived there. Um, and Jaffa would come around all the time and give impromptu lectures and read his latest letter to someone. Um, and he would allow the graduate students to come by his office. Uh, he kept an office in the, in the basement of the library after he retired. Um, and I studied with uh, many of Jaffa's uh, students, uh, the sort of the second generation, especially people like Charles Kessler, but also Larry, who was the president of the Claremont Institute at the time. Um, then after a little hiatus, got my PhD, um, worked in the government for a little while, uh, been associated with the Claremont Institute for a long time. Um, but I've known Jaffa and Jaffa's students and, and the arguments that he makes and the scholarship he and his students have produced for 25 or 30 years. So, Glenn, um, yesterday when I was talking to Dr. R and I re regaled him with a story about Ken Matsui, who I'm sure you know. Do you know Ken? Sure. Well, Ken and I were driving around back in the California days, and he asked why I hadn't gone to graduate school with Harvey Mansfield. I got turned down, wanted the real answer, but I said I wasn't smart enough to be a Straussian. And he said that's a very Straussian thing to say. And we had a good laugh over that. And I think people wouldn't understand what that exchange means until they read The Soul of Politics. Do you want to ex let's just begin with Leo Strauss, because that's actually sure. part of the genius of The Soul of Politics is that you finally lay it out for people what this is all about. Who is Leo Strauss? Why does he matter before we get to his student, Harry Jaffa? 
Sure. So Leo Strauss was a tremendously influential and important figure in the 20th century. He was a refugee from Nazi Germany, came to the United States, taught for a little while at the New School for Social Research in New York, where Jaffa got to know him. Jaffa was one of his first PhD students. And then Strauss went on to the University of Chicago and spent many, many years there, taught generations of students. And Strauss, in a way, was uh, almost single-handedly responsible for reviving the serious study of the Western philosophical tradition, especially classical philosophy of ancient Greece, not as historical curiosities, but as sources of real wisdom. The idea that we're not just trapped in our own time and place, this idea of cultural relativism, which is very powerful with the intellectual class, and really dominated uh, the entire academy uh, through the middle of the 20th century. And Strauss refuted that and argued against it in a very powerful way and said, look, we can read the great philosophers, the great thinkers of the past um, as if they have something permanent to say, because there is permanent truth. Human nature is permanent. Uh, you know, the, the, the laws of nature and nature's God, which is where Jaffa took this, um, uh, represent enduring truths. There are permanent questions of political philosophy. Strauss then took this approach, this uh, anti-historicist approach, which is just historical relativism, and applied it to America. So it's not just Plato and Aristotle that are sources of living wisdom, but the founding fathers too. And so, for instance, when the Declaration says all men are created equal, that wasn't just true in 1776. It's still true today. And that was really Jaffa's primary contribution of adapting Strauss to America. Uh, Leo Strauss had, by my count, uh, four maybe five really significant students, of whom Harry Jaffa is one. I sat in the lectures. I can't say I learned from Harvey Mansfield, Jr., although I was in a lot of the lectures by Harvey Mansfield, Jr. Uh, and there are other he, – his father was a student of Strauss, and there is uh, many other people on the coaching trees. But Jaffa is probably the most significant because he establishes what is known as the West Coast Straussians. What do we mean by that, uh, Glenn Ellis? Right. Sure. So Strauss, uh, again, had many, many students, uh, and they sort of split into two camps. So one of the things that uh, Strauss did by reviving the serious study of classical thought was to focus on reading books in a very serious way, not just superficially skimming them, but treating these thinkers as someone, as people who put enormous thought into what they were saying and writing. And so their books have to be read very closely with great care, paying attention to the details, uh, if there are contradictions, and see what is this thinker really trying to tell us maybe at a little deeper level. And some uh, of the students never got past, you might say, uh, this textual analysis. They never uh, saw the political aspect of political philosophy. And Jaffa took this in a very different direction uh, and uh, uh, worked from Strauss's argument that political philosophy always begins with political questions, with the opinions of the citizens, with uh, the opinions of the regime, the country, the society where we live. And political philosophy also has something to teach. At its best, it brings uh, reason and, and rationality and moderation into politics. And so the West Coast Straussian, which is what Jaffa represented, based in California, in Claremont, California, uh, was a much more political uh, emphasis rather than just studying books for the sake of studying books. Now, I think the East Coast Straussians would reply, we studied books for the sake of studying books while we weeded out the people that... Uh, the hidden teaching could not actually be trusted with. I think they would say that. And and the Straussians I learned from, whether it's Bill Crystal, Alan Keyes, Nathan Tarkov, Harvey Mansfield, they weren't esoteric for the sake of being esoteric. They just didn't want to draw. 
they didn't want to connect the dots, really. And I, <laughs> and I find the soul of politics. I told Larry yesterday, gosh, this would have been useful to have in 1974 because it's a game plan. And it's actually kind of, it's not cliff notes, but it's a game plan. Do, do you understand what I mean by that, Glenn? Yeah, I do, because part of my intention was to honor Jaffa's attempt to um, make the study of political philosophy practical and relevant for citizens. And so what I try to do is connect some of Jaffa's theoretical investigations and his studies of America to contemporary issues. And so I look at some famous speeches and show how, for instance, what Lincoln said in the Lyceum Address about the danger of, of mobs and mob rules is <laughs> very relevant today. I wrote that in the summer of 2020, so it was very much on my mind. And a lot of the other things I do try to show um, why right now, during this very difficult time that we're facing, uh, these very fundamental questions about constitutionalism, the rule of law, consent, uh, equality, are very much on people's minds. And, and to think these things through and to understand them is something that really, Jaffa can really offer in a way that's, I think, very helpful. So my my 30,000 foot summary, and and we are going to do detailed reads of this with Dr. Arn over a couple of weeks on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Here's my 30,000 foot summary. There are three forces at work. The modernists, the progressives, the people who believe in historicism. There are the philosophers and and there are the statesmen. And the philosophers and the statesmen sometimes get along and they don't sometimes get along. But the historicists are against both of them. Is that a fair summary? Yes, I, that's right. That's right. Uh, statesmanship is the realm of uh, practice and philosophy, strictly speaking, is the realm of theory. And it's important to distinguish them, but it's also important not to see them as diametrically opposed. Uh, theory can inform practice and practical statesmen at their best read theory. I mean, the founding fathers certainly read a lot of philosophy, <clears throat> but it's important to remember that uh, <clears throat> politics, citizenship, statesmanship require practical wisdom. Uh, and theory has its own place, but it can it can inform and teach in important ways. The historicists are out of the picture altogether because they're totally useless. <laughs> well, the reason I bring them up is because both the historicists and the philosophers want to influence the statesman. And the statesman right. has to pick between those two camps. The poets are out there somewhere else, but I'm not sure that they're speaking directly to statesmen ever. They might be speaking to the philosophers. But the philosophers think the big thoughts and they they have a theory and argument so do the historicists, but they both want to influence the statesmen. And it's rare, it's rare to find statesmen who actually understand what their objective is. I think the two that recur most often are Lincoln and Churchill in your book, uh, as they do with Dr. Arn in the Hillsdale Dialogues. Are there anyone at work today among the statesmen that you recognize as trying to follow what, I, what I'll call the Lincoln-Churchill paradigm of leadership? Um, I'm reluctant to start naming names because then I'm afraid I might leave someone out. And, you know, someone could, there might be someone out there right now who's not as well known. Remember, you know, Lincoln, only a decade before he emerged onto the national scene, was almost completely anonymous. So uh, certainly there are, you know, every, everyone on the right uh, is a big fan of Governor DeSantis, and for reasons I can well appreciate, on the practical level, he seems he seems willing to fight. He seems willing to stand up for principles, and so that's very laudatory. Um, we may find someone emerging in a, in a in a few months or a few years that we had had no idea. It turns out to be you know a Lincoln for our day, and let's hope that happens. But there well, are that's some what, people out there who I think that's what I think, Lynn. I think there are people who aspire 
to rise to a level of leadership equal to Lincoln's because they consider the times in which we live to be as dangerous as those times, not because of internal civil war. I actually don't think that's the issue. I think it's a more Churchillian challenge coming from the CCP and rogue states like Iran and Russia, and that these people who aspire to be the Lincoln for our time are willing to be serious for the purposes of big questions that you outline in the soul of politics. I just, I see them. I know who they are. I'm unwilling to name names, too. I was just wondering if you see the same sort of thing. Some people think we are at a genuine, deep inflection point in American history. I think that's absolutely true. So one of the things I'm trying to do with the book is reach younger people who see uh, the way our system is broken, who see the crisis of the regime and are tempted into a kind of cynicism or despair and to pull them away from that and to show them that actually in a time of crisis, that's exactly when great statesmanship can emerge. And so for people who care about the country, who are disappointed in what they see, uh, what I want to do is rally them. Uh, and uh, uh, call them to the fight uh, and show them through Jaffa's example and Jaffa's teaching that uh, spirited, magnanimous statesmanship can be a great calling and not to despair or be cynical. Now, the next time we talk, I expect fully to see that there are a number of arrows in your back. And one of those arrows (laughs) is going to come from the gender-dominated scholarship community who believe you have written a book for natural gentlemen, natural aristoc- uh, gentlemen of the natural aristocracy, a phrase that you use repeatedly. And you do right. talk about gentlemen of the natural aristocracy a few times. And those from the, the gender academy are going to accuse you of being sexist. You're also going to be accused by some Straussians of being reductionist and dismissive of East Coast. You're going to have a lot of arrows in your back. Do you agree with me, Glenn Elmers? Yes, that's fine. Um, Jaffa was never afraid of a fight, and I'm trying to honor that spirit uh, by willing to to fight as well. On the gender issue, you know, uh, gentlemanship is just, uh, you know, that's just the way the English language works. It's it's a male. But I think Aristotle and Churchill, I mean, uh, Jaffa certainly was a great admirer of of, uh, Lady Thatcher. I think Aristotle would have seen Margaret Thatcher as an example of gentlemanship, for lack of a better word. Uh, So it's not really sexist. I I agree. I wanted people to know that they're going to run into that speed bump. And I want them to know that Golda Meir and Margaret Thatcher would be perfectly comfortable with the concepts of courage. The secret to happiness is freedom and the secret to freedom is courage. That's Thucydides. And that's at the soul of politics. Now I want to go to Jaffa. Again, this is the introduction. Strauss is the, the huge figure. I mean, where would America be right now without Strauss? Have you thought about that? Uh, we'd still be trapped in these intellectual errors that were so dominant. Um, and, uh, you know, in a way, we'd just be further along the path that the left wants to take us now towards uh, moral relativism and positivism, identity politics, um, all of these isms that are now so dominant. And and uh, Strauss and, and Jaffa, to some degree, uh, put up an opposition, and that opposition is still fighting. Um, but I think without their contributions, that opposition into, on the intellectual, philosophical level wouldn't exist at all. Let, let me, in fact, boil it down. I believe no Strauss, no Jaffa, no Jaffa, no Goldwater, no Goldwater, no Reagan, no Reagan, no fall of the Soviet Union when it fell. That's my simple truth. Do you agree with that, Glenn? Uh, that's a powerful syllogism, and I'm sure I agree with that. Yep. Okay. That's because Harry Jaffa has a role in American politics, which you articulate. It's disputed. You don't hide the dispute. 
Would you explain the role of Jaffa's political intervention in 1964? So uh, Goldwater is, is, you know, running for president uh, in 1964 at the convention against some uh, moderates who are calling him an extremist and a fanatic. And uh, Jaffa writes this memo responding to the extremism charge. He had been thinking back to Martin Luther King's uh, Birmingham speech, where King actually uh, defends extremism and quotes these great figures and says, the question is, what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for justice and so forth? And Jaffa picks up on that and folds it into Goldwater's speech and crafts a famous line about extremism in the, in the defense of liberty is no vice, moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Um, and Goldwater, I mean, it becomes a tremendously influential, that Goldwater doesn't win the presidency, of course, wins the nomination. But that speech and that spirit becomes tremendously influential. And as you say, uh, inspired Reagan, uh, who won the Cold War and all the subsequent events that you mentioned. And I'm a um, Ford guy. Jaffa then in, went in, on. What's it? In 1976, I was for Jerry Ford because Reagan scared me because he always talked about liberty so much. Now I'm a liberty guy, not a libertarian, but a liberty guy, a freedom guy. And it's beginning to look, when you get to the end of the road at 65, you look backwards and you say, gosh, I got 76 wrong, but I got 80 right, I got 84 right. You really can't tell until you're way down the road the validity of the decisions you made at a previous time. I think that comes through in the soul of politics. And you evolve. Harry Jaffa evolves. This is the first time I've actually seen... The, the move from the crisis of a house divided through to his later writings articulated and laid out, Glenn. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. He had seen Lincoln as this monumental world historical figure you know, who, in a way, saved America by purging the sin of slavery uh, through, through you know, the Civil War. Um, and, and Jaffa treats him as almost a messianic figure. And he didn't invent that. I mean, this, this uh, narrative of of Lincoln as the martyred Christ uh, uh, of the American drama is not new to him, but he gives it a very philosophical cast. But then he comes to see that the nobility, the high-minded sense of justice that Lincoln brings is already there in the founding. And Lincoln was just bringing it out and articulating it, but didn't really invent it. And so Jaffa comes to have a much higher estimation of the founders themselves as his career progresses. So uh, Dr. Jaffa came over to the studio and you brought him one day and we talked about the Declaration of (laughs) Independence. It was a marvelous show. We still use parts of it on the 4th of July. And uh, we began by talking about the Declaration. We ended up with Lincoln. He dismissed as irrelevant the 1863 Lincoln Proclamation on the need for a day of penance and absolution. He thought other people wrote him for that. Do you agree with him on that, Glenn? Um. I'm not primarily a historian. I can't match Jaffa's, you know, Jaffa just mastered all of that material. So I, um, I, don't, I don't really feel qualified to weigh in on that one way or the other. Um, it's because he didn't want to admit that Lincoln was a Christian, though he did want to admit that Lincoln believed in providence in the second yes, inaugural. Absolutely. L- right, much like right, George Washington, true. right? I'm not sure what Washington right. believed, but he believed in providence, and so did Lincoln. And so apparently does Jaffa. Is that fair? Yeah. So so, you know, when you get to these uh, very philosophical minds, it's very hard to pin down exactly what they think. Jaffa definitely was not a historical determinist. He was not an atheist in the sense that the the world is just meaningless, just random. He certainly believed that there was a providence, an order in the universe, certainly a moral order that is not created by human beings that exists by nature 
the god of nature. What his precise religious views were in the in detail, I don't really know. He was raised a Jew. He wasn't all that uh, assiduous practicing his Judaism, but but very much was a believer in uh, a providence or an order to the universe, definitely. You know what I've been thinking about, Glenn, as well, as I get ready, again, you have to read a book, then you have to outline a book, then you have to outline your outline, then you have to do the interview. So I'm only at part two. <laughs> um, Jaffa abandoning classical music to study political theory. That's a big choice. I can't imagine yeah. the musicians I know laying down their instrument. Did he ever pick it back up? He did not ever pursue the violin. So he had been a very uh, devoted violin player and then dropped that to devote more of his time and energy to studying political philosophy. Um, he, he kept an interest in listening to music. I don't think that he ever picked up playing the violin again in a serious way, as far as I recall. He, I, I never saw him play it all the times I, I saw him in Claremont. Okay, so he made a huge choice. And all that energy yeah. and time that would otherwise go into practice went into letter writing. Now, there are very <laughs> few people who do correspondence anymore. And I love how you have spent the time with his archive to interweave his correspondence. William F. Buckley famously remarking, if you think it's difficult to disagree with Harry Jaffa, try agreeing with him. Because he just loved the argument. That's a fair summary, right? Oh, absolutely. The, the repository that Hillsdale has is just an amazing resource thousands of letters. I mean, Jaffa loved writing letters. And, you know, he grew up in a time when you only wrote letters. There were no his cell phones, obviously, even ordinary phone. Uh, you know, he was born in 1918. Um, he wrote thousands of letters and Hillsdale has three and a half big filing cabinets. And I think there are 600 folders of the different people he wrote to. And some of them are big. I mean, he exchanged letters with some people over the course of many decades. And it's a marvelous resource. And I wasn't even to dig into all of it, but it's there's there's wonderful stuff there that really in, elaborates on his thinking in many areas. Now, let me tell you what my project is with the soul of politics. Next week on Monday, uh, Professor Mansfield is joining me. I'm going to ask oh. him the same question I'm going to ask Andrew Sullivan, who is himself no mean political theorist, which is, uh, is this battle over? Uh, have we lost? By we, I mean both East Coast, West Coast Straussians, those of us who are not smart enough to know, uh, be Straussians but know what the battle is about and who are happy to be foot soldiers in journalism on behalf of the larger cause. Is it over? Glenn? I, I think it might be over. I think the route might be complete. Um, I think given how radical the left has become, how anti-intellectual, anti-intellectual, anti-rational it's become, how the academies themselves are succumbing to a kind of barbarism, an anti-intellectual barbarism. The idea that you can retreat into, behind some garden wall, retreat into an ivory tower and dispense with politics, I think is the illusion of that is, is crumbling. And so to the degree that the East Coast Straussians think that they can just stay above politics, I think that's becoming increasingly clear that they can't. And so I think to some degree, Jaffa and West Coast Straussians are being vindicated more and more all the time. Vindicated, but my old friend Charles Kessler and you have also been attacked for being part of a, quote, Trumpist revolution. I always think that's silly. I always think people don't understand that perhaps Donald Trump provided a vehicle for Straussians rather than uh, Straussians being employed by Donald Trump to his ends. I, I think they just missed the whole deal. But even so, Donald Trump was defeated. He lost. There was no evidence that he won. I don't believe a minute of that. And I haven't since the day after the election. 
I recently had him on the air and I said, Mr. President, I'm, I'm not interested in this. And he told me I was wrong, but he understands I'm not interested in it. And we talked about other things. I think the route is complete and that if it's going to make a revival, it may have to be done surreptitiously. Uh, not not sinister, but just by people who embrace the bigger battle, but don't talk about it because it scares people. What do you think about that? Right, right. So, you know, whatever you may think of him, uh, uh, Trump exposed some things, broke some things that needed to be broken in a way. He sort of showed the phoniness of the of the bipartisan establishment, the post-war establishment, uh, which was corrupt and hollow in many ways. Um even if he had won a second term, there was a lot that still needed to be done. And so uh, he was always going to need a successor and a successor with different qualities, better qualities in some ways, uh, more open perhaps to uh, the kind of um, uh, thoughts and advice that that philosophically minded people can offer. So, yeah, we're, we're definitely in need of another statesman, a statesman with different qualities uh, for, for challenges that we're facing now. I want to ask you a tough question about President Trump. Do you think he was ignorant of many important things in the world that you are describing in the soul of politics? Not not stupid, just uneducated about them, ignorant of them. Um, yes, on one level. So we've had very intellectual presidents uh, and they've been among our worst in some ways. Right. I mean, Woodrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, PhD, yep. was, was a disaster. Right. Um, you know, on the other hand, most of the very early presidents were very well educated. You know, they all had, you know, Washington and Adams and Jefferson all had classical educations. They knew Latin and Greek. I mean, Adams and Jefferson wrote to each other sometimes in Greek, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Um, uh, Trump certainly does not have that kind of formal education. But again, it's important to remember that politics operates in the realm of practical wisdom, practical reason. And and Trump had a kind of gut understanding of things. Oh, I, 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 intuitive grasp of politics and a terrible aesthetics is how I describe it. Yeah. I also believe his temperament, though, was more like a child than like a mature adult. Do you agree with that? Um, uh, his temperament, <laughs> his temperament could be his own worst enemy. Um, so it has both pluses and minuses. On the plus side, he wasn't buffaloed or bullied by people who waved their credentials at him, who claimed to be experts. He, you know, he wasn't impressed by that. And there's a lot to be said for that. We should not be overly impressed by the people who call themselves experts and want to rule us without our consent. Um, but his impetuousness and, and, and other things were certainly certainly detracted from any accomplishments he was trying to achieve. Sure. Because temperament in a statesman, again, and I'm thinking of Washington, Lincoln and Churchill, doesn't mean dull. Because Churchill is anything but dull and Lincoln is anything but but humorless. And Washington is right. anything. He loved the theater and he loved to dance. So there are it, it's not the same thing. But temperament matters a lot. And can you sure. teach temperament? Um, you can up to a point, but uh, you need to start early. One of Jaffa's favorite books, one of the great books in the Western canon is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and it's primarily directed towards younger people. It's not hopeless uh, if you start later in life, but moral. Ha so uh, temperament comes out of your moral habits and habits come from repetition. And it's important to establish. This is why the education of the young is so tremendously important. You have to establish good habits early. And, you know, you could change your temperament when you're 50 or 60, but it's a lot harder. And so it's 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 useful to establish the habits that will guide and mold your temperament early in life. And it certainly does matter a great deal 
And and this is my compliment to you. This is why I want young people to read The Soul of Politics. If they go into political theory, it's important to know the stakes. It's important not to know what Shakespeare is going to reveal to you, but that you need to know Shakespeare, which I didn't know in college. I didn't take Shakespeare. I'm still backfilling because nobody in the government department said, by the way, We'll talk about Virtu and Machiavelli endlessly because it's Mansfield and it's and it's Crystal and it's Tarkov. But we're not going to tell you that you need to know Shakespeare. And I think the soul of politics is a bit of genius here, Glenn. It's a reading list as developed by a master political theorist who is also involved in the politics and the training of statesmen. And and so it's more of a guidebook than I could ever hope to wrote, write. And I wrote one for young people. Did you intend that? <laughs> I did a little bit. Um, what I want to do also is, you know, I could only scratch the surface. There's there's a tremendous amount of stuff, and some of Jaffa's stuff is out of print, but a lot of it is available. I want to point people back to reading Jaffa in the original because I, I can only summarize and, and distill it a little bit. Um, and he was so prolific and prodigious. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in part what I want to do is provide a list of people where people can go to study these things further, sure. It also points you back to Churchill in the original, and most importantly, in my view, Lincoln in the original. Yes. And I, I am very happy when I saw my son-in-law. He was taking some grief. He was carrying around a used copy of Lincoln's speeches and was actually reading it. And he's a wow. warrior. He's not a, not a statesman. He's a warrior. But Lincoln's speeches are the real deal. It might be the pinnacle of American political statesmanship. Do you think that's right? Oh, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, one of one of the great things that Link. So, just a real a quick word on rhetoric. So, rhetoric has a bad name today, just like prudence, which is another word I discuss in the book. Rhetoric has a bad name as a kind of, uh, you know, sort of sly or clever way of speaking, but it's a very important concept in self-government, in constitutional government, because it means persuasion. And the alternative to bullets is ballots, right? Free elections are the, are the alternative to civil war. And that means the ability for citizens to speak to each other, for, for people running for office to persuade. And that's what rhetoric in the classical sense means. And Lincoln was an absolute master of this. He knew how to speak to people without condescending to them and yet elevating them. He, he, he fortunately had the, the idiom that all the American people at the time understood, which was the King James Bible. And one of the problems we have today is we lack this common reference, uh, a way of speaking to people using imagery and stories and narratives that they can relate to. That's one of the challenges we have today. But <clears throat> Lincoln was an absolute master of that. While you were just saying that, I just looked up. I want to make sure I got the title right. American Creation by Joseph Ellis. I'm reading it in tandem with The Soul of Politics because I have to start teaching con law again in January. And you've kind of made me rethink how I teach con law. You know, most con law in law schools begins in 1803. It's really remarkable. <laughs> they think it begins with John Marshall in 1803. And Joseph Ellis actually introduces the concept that John Marshall being at Valley Forge is vital to understanding his Marbury v. Madison opinion. Would you agree with him on that? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, starting in 1803 is uh, really in medias res. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, never mind the whole common law. I mean, you know, you really need to understand the articles and the, and the Constitution, where all of that comes from, even to understand Marshall himself. Sure, absolutely. And to understand why Madison and Hamilton embedded in the Constitution an argument about the Declaration of Independence. None exactly. of that is in any uh, what, what Jaffa seems to do, his great epic effort 
is that he never stopped doing politics, Glenn. I had really, I got glimmers of this from Dr. Arn and Professor Eastman and you and meeting Harry Jaffa, but I really had no idea how immersed he was in the day-to-day of the American political struggle for 60 years. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, he thought these things mattered. He, he was a, a philosophic patriot, and so he paid attention. He, you know, he wrote uh, not just lots and lots of letters to people, but lots of letters to the editor. I mean, tremendous numbers. Now, they didn't always get published, uh, but he kept them because he was always interested in commenting on public affairs. He paid attention, um, especially foreign affairs, you know, Israel, the Cold War, um, dom- all aspects of domestic politics, because he thought that these things really mattered. And and he thought that his background uh, had something to offer to instruct and elevate the discussion about these things. Yeah. Now, the, the clash of, of his political uh, agenda with the other faculty at Claremont came through during the student protests. And I, I think you tell that tale very well, and I think it's important. That would not happen today. He would be run off of Claremont. I mean, I, I just believe he could not survive today as a faculty member at Claremont. Do you agree with me? Yeah. I mean, you know, what, did you just see in the news the other day, Peter Bogosian, who's a liberal, you know, one of you know, just the lightest in a long line of people who call themselves liberals who can't abide what is happening on the campus now. For So for someone who was as explicitly uh, conservative and on the right as Jaffa was, it's hard to see how, how he would have been uh, considered acceptable in the academy today. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting for me when I return. I, I, I think I've been gone for a year and a half from Chapman because I've been working in D.C. It'll be interesting how that academy has changed. I don't think badly, but I do worry about the last the last place you can actually study American statesmanship and constitutional theory is law school. I think it's gone from the American Academy. Am I? Maybe it's at Hillsdale and a few other schools, but it's generally 95% historicist. Am I correct? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, Hillsdale, you know, to its credit, actually uses the word statesmanship in the, in the, in the description of its, of its graduate program. Um, but yeah, I mean, these, these concepts are either uh, host- rejected in a completely hostile way or completely misunderstood in, in 99.9% of, of American colleges, unfortunately. There you go. So Jaffa failed. No, because it's not 100%. <laughs> well, you know, that. let's talk about that. When you have the most powerful nation in the world laying down its power and retreating from a primitive medieval society and abandoning its citizens as we began this discussion talking about the fact that we have Americans held hostage by a medieval band of terrorists, uh, it's hard to see how we recover from this. It is hard to see, but uh, one line I quote in the book that Jaffa was fond of, this is sort of my paraphrase of a sentiment, sentiment Jaffa expressed many times, despair is not just a sin, it's an intellectual error. And he loves the story of Churchill in May of 1940, the Nazi power is dominant on the continent. It's ready to invade England. It seemed like all hope was lost. And Churchill hurls defiance across the English challenge, you know, stands up to this great tyrant, rallies the British people, coordinates with, with the United States. And Hitler is ultimately defeated. And that seemed impossible in May of 1940. And, and Jaffa, Strauss too, and, and Jaffa both, loved this example of Churchill's resolute bulldog determination in the face of what seemed to be overwhelming odds. And yet there is always a glimmer of hope, as that episode proves. Well, Leo Strauss in the City and Man introduction, it's the only thing I remember very well, has a famous couple of paragraphs that say 
the West will never be in a crisis, even if it's defeated, provided that it hangs on to its purpose and understands its purpose. But if it loses track of its purpose, it will be uh, uh, defeated. Do you think the West has lost track of its purpose? Um, uh, in the intellectual class, yes. Uh, among ordinary people, not yet. And that's where I think our hope lies. Uh, oddly enough, uh, the less educated, <laughs> the less formal uh, in, uh, le education you have from our corrupt intellectual elites, uh, the more likely, more likely you are to have sound opinions. And that's there's, I think, still hope left in ordinary Americans who have not been too much corrupted by our intellectual ruling class. And aside, Lincoln said he was educated by Shakespeare and the King James Bible. And that was it. Uh, King James Bible. And, and where did he get his Aristotle then? When did he get his politics of government from? Was it all derivative of Shakespeare? Um, so he also read a lot of law. Right. So remember, you know, uh, reading, the, especially in those days, reading the great legal thinkers were, was also an education in the sure. common law principles of free government. So when you add to that the Bible and Shakespeare, who brings a great many uh, concepts out of classical philosophy, when you put all that together, it's a pretty good education. Now, I want to conclude by talking about Harry Jaffa as a teacher. He was your teacher. I only yeah. encountered him once at any extended level, and you were there. Uh, and it was difficult to keep him on task, right, uh, for an interviewer. <laughs> and uh, I've often said, Comedians and political theorists are the worst guests because uh, they don't stay on task. Was he an excellent teacher for being all the disorganized uh, approach that he had? He was, he was very disorganized. Uh, Larry Arn tells a wonderful story in the book about how disorganized. So one of his best classes and many, many students over the years say this is the best class they ever had in their entire college careers was this book that we mentioned, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And it has a very portentous opening line where Aristotle says, all things seem to aim at some good. And Jaffa would sometimes spend weeks on the very first line of the ethics before he ever got any further. But what he did was he would show you connections. He would go off on what seems to be a tangent for an hour. And then an hour later, he would come back in an almost miraculous way and close the loop and show you this incredibly deep and thoughtful way that different things were connected. He was also, despite how argumentative he could be with other intellectuals and political, political figures, he was extraordinarily kind to all of his students, kind with, he was, he never ever would have thought of embarrassing or humiliating a student. He was always very generous with his time. So yeah, I mean, he had his hobby horses, he could be a little vain, uh, but he was an extraordinary man and an extraordinary teacher. You know, kindness is, um, uh, Montaigne says, the surest sign of wisdom is a constant cheerfulness. Uh, and I did my senior thesis on Montaigne, and I love that line. The surest sign of wisdom is a constant cheerfulness. I believe he was constantly cheerful to my limited extent. Was he? Yes, yes. He I mean, he enjoyed these arguments. He was even cheerful when he was in a, in a battle with someone, partly because he thought these things mattered. And so he like he really tried to live the Socratic idea that we pursue the truth by discussing it and arguing about it. Uh, and he really, despite other people sometimes taking personal offense. He really never let these disagreements get in the way of personal friendships or tried not to. And he remained friends with, you know, uh, people like Wilmore Kendall, a very influential paleoconservative. Uh, he support, uh, he was very practical. You know, he supported Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court, even though he disagreed with uh, ju uh, Judge Bork's jurisprudence. 
Um, but he, yes, he was a cheerful warrior, definitely. As long as the argument goes on, we're living in a place where the argument can go on, so it's wrong to despair. I believe that's true, and I think that's what you mean by 99.9. Let's conclude here, Glenn, on the soul of politics. If you are a young, uh, uh, natural aristocrat, male or female, and you have to go somewhere to school and you don't get into Hillsdale, and you've read the soul of politics and you're excited by its ideas, and I believe a lot of young people will be, you want a Jaffa. Where are you going to go? Um, there are other good schools. I just was invited out to Notre Dame by an old friend of mine, a professor there named Philip Munoz. Um, uh, and I didn't get to meet too many of their undergraduates, but the graduate students there were very impressive. There were some law students there were very impressive. You know, Baylor has a good program. There are, there are other in, in political philosophy. There are other schools out there. And the other thing is, of course, you're always free to supplement your own education with your own reading. Um, and, you know, there's tremendous stuff online for free. And so even if you uh, wind up at a school where perhaps the faculty are not ideal, uh, supplement your own education with books. You know, there are fellowship programs that the Claremont Institute has. There are online things that Hillsdale has. So there's a lot out there, even if you can't find a school that's exactly what you want. And so I would encourage people to start with the soul of politics, apply to Hillsdale and then find professors who will encourage you to read what Harry Jaffa read and to invest in you in the way that Harry Jaffa invested in Glenn Elmer's. Glenn, I look forward to continuing the conversation a couple of Fridays down the road. Thank you for joining me. Congratulations on The Soul of Politics. It's really a wonderful book. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I appreciate that. Thank you, Glenn. Be well. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com